0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, our hot question of the day today is probably on a topic that you didn't think we would use for our hot question of the day. It has to do with what scares you. We saw the story of the invasive Asian giant hornet, and we've talked about it a couple of times here on the show. We will be hearing the latest update coming up. But we wanted to know, like, the pictures of these things are so terrifying. And for some people, like, hornets, wasps, bees are just so scary, right? But then we thought, well, what are you most afraid of running into? Is it one of these Asian giant hornets? What if you ran into a tarantula? Would that scare you more? What about a python? Or maybe it's something else. Tell us. That's our hot question of the day. You can find it at CKNW or at Simisara 980. You can also tell me a story. Maybe you've already run into one of these things and it scared the heck out of you. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. Call our buzz line 604-331-2899. I'll tell you right now, for me, it's the Python. If I, like, if some pet, somebody's pet python randomly got loose and I ran into that somewhere, just I'll, I'd never leave my house ever again. That's exactly, I would just be so terrified, I could never leave my house again. But for you, maybe it's a tarantula or an Asian giant hornet. Who knows? So check it out. Our hot question of the day today will let you know what the results are. Right now, i got to tell you, the Asian giant hornets are out in front. All right, we're going to take some time here on this Friday morning to kind of update you on where things stand with the election. We're not going to beat it over the head or anything like that, but we're just going to let you know what's happened in the last 24 hours. And today I know the parties are mostly, especially the Liberals, trying to change the channel, get back to the regular campaign stuff. But it's really hard to ignore that huge story. And a big reason why is that it's making headlines All over the world, Justin Trudeau's past photos, where he was dressed in brown and blackface makeup, is that story is everywhere. In fact, U.S. President Donald Trump was even asked about it this morning, and here is his response: "Justin
1: Trudeau
2: can he survive this controversy? Well, I was hoping I wouldn't uh, be asked that question. It had to be you that asked it. You had to ask me that question, right, Justin? I'm surprised." And I was more surprised when I saw the number of times. And, you know, I've always had a good relationship with Justin. Uh, I just don't know what to tell you. I was surprised
3: by it, actually.
0: So that is the response from U.S. President Donald Trump. And you know what, I think maybe that's why this is getting so many headlines all over the world. People are surprised that this would happen here. Uh, Now, Justin Trudeau himself was also... Asked to respond to the international outcry and attention that he's getting over his use of black and brown face. US President Donald Trump has uh, said this morning that he was surprised to see images of you uh, wearing black face and
1: particularly at the number of times uh, that you wore it. What kind of an impact do you think that this is going to have on your international reputation and how do you think it will affect your credibility
0: as a world leader?
2: My focus is on Canadians who face discrimination every day. Canadians who are racialized, uh, who live with intolerance and marginalization as uh, part of their daily experience, who I hurt. People who uh, in many cases considered me to be an ally uh, who are uh, deeply hurt by the terrible choices I made many years ago. Uh, I apologize deeply to them and I will focus on continuing what I have uh, tried to do as a leader, which is always stand against racism and discrimination at home and on the world stage.
0: So still lots of questions for Justin Trudeau on this. And as I said, the reason why is that this is making these headlines all over the world. For example, listeners to National Radio in Ireland this morning woke up. To an interviewee subject that is very familiar to us here in BC and in particular here on the Simi Sarah show.
4: A video has surfaced another video of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in blackface. This is the third time. Uh, well, joining us now is Keith Baldry, who is the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global TV in British Columbia, the station who broke the story originally. Uh, Keith, what has been the reaction to this story in Canada?
3: Oh, it's electrified the nation. We've never seen anything like this in Canadian politics.
0: Man, that guy's everywhere, right? He's everywhere, Keith Baldry. He's so good at that. So that was uh, Keith on National Radio in Ireland this morning. Uh, So the late night talk shows in the United States also, as you would expect, piled on this story. Have a listen to this combination of Seth Meyers, Conan O'Brien, Stephen Colbert, and Trevor Noah. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is facing criticism After a photo from 2001 surfaced in which he is wearing brown face. I'm not going to show you the picture because it's really bad It's so bad that Canadians traveling in Europe are going to start telling people they're American
5: Big scandal up in Canada New photos have surfaced of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in blackface Yeah, as a result, Trudeau has been dropped from the cast of Saturday Night Live He's gone <laughs>
3: Now, uh, there is some big news out of Canada concerning Prime Minister and Man Europe boot to be surprised by Justin Trudeau. A photo has emerged of Trudeau wearing brown face at a party. This is pretty bad. And I just want to say, it's not us this time! Suck
2: it, Canada! Woo! When I was in high school, I uh, dressed up at a uh, talent show. Uh, and sang Deo in, with, 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 uh, with makeup on.
0: Yeah, this is not good, man. Because you realize what happened here? Trudeau came out to
5: apologize for one blackface and ended up admitting to more. He's like, I did brownface for Aladdin and I did blackface when I sang the song Deo.
0: And now, if you'll excuse me, daylight's coming and me one go home. Okay, come on. Those are pretty funny, right? I particularly like the Seth Meyers one about Amer- Canadians now saying they're American when they travel overseas. Uh, okay, so they're having a lot of fun with it, obviously making some good jokes. Uh, on the campaign trail, it's still very much a topic. And what I'm going to be interested to watch for over the next little while is how much the other political parties continue to hit the Liberals on this. And is there's still room for them to, say, score some points on it? Well, my Mike is with Andrew Scheer today and has more on what the conservative leader focused his attack on this morning.
5: Andrew Scheer refuses to accept Justin Trudeau's apology for his use of blackface and brownface, saying Trudeau is hypocritical because he claims the Liberal leader would have turfed one of his own candidates if that person had done something similar. Earlier this week, Scheer said that if one of his candidates was found to have said or done something questionable in the past and then apologized for it, they would be allowed to still run as a Conservative. Today, Scheer was once again asked about his 2005 speech in the House of Commons where he compared same-sex marriage to a dog's tail, something for which he has never apologised. Scheer deflected when he was asked about that, hoping to continue to call into question the Liberal leader's ethics and moral authority to govern. Mike LeCouture, Global News.
0: All right, so that's a little bit about what the Conservatives have been up to today. There's more to come, right? It's early on the campaign trail. There's lots of events that are scheduled for today and into the weekend. And I think what the Liberals are hoping for is that they're just going to keep on chugging along. They're going to keep making policy announcements from their campaign platform and hope... That will help change the channel, but we don't know if that's actually going to happen yet. So what was that policy announcement that they promised this morning? Well, Justin Trudeau today promising to ban all military-style assault rifles as part of a broader gun control plan that will also take some steps towards restricting and banning handguns. The Liberals are pledging to work with provinces and territories to empower municipalities to further those restrictions or ban on handguns.
2: We will ban military style assault rifles and start a buyback program for all military grade weapons that were legally purchased. And we will work with the provinces and territories to enable municipalities to restrict handguns. We will not bring back the long gun registry. And we will continue to respect Canadian farmers and hunters. But we know you do not need A military-grade assault weapon, one designed to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time, to take down a deer. People are dying. Families are grieving. Communities are suffering. So we're going to do more, and we're going to do better. Thoughts and prayers are just not going to cut it.
0: That is Liberal Leader Justin Trudeau talking about gun control issues today, hoping that will be enough to change the channel. But as I said, we'll see about that. Well, today we're talking about things that scare us, like the Asian giant hornet. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we knew that they had been spotted in Nanaimo, but not like this. The Ministry of Agriculture now says that they have found an underground nest of invasive Asian giant hornets. This happened on Wednesday night. They discovered it, they destroyed it. And they say they're going to try to preserve the bodies of these invasive hornets so they could try to figure out where they came from. How big are these things? Well, they can be up to five centimeters long. Think about that for a second. Just do that measurement. That's big with a wingspan of seven centimeters. The government also says that stings are rare, but if a person is stung multiple times, there is risk of toxic or allergic reaction. Now, they're common in parts of China, Korea, and Japan, and yet here we are seeing them here. So we wanted to check back in with Gail Wallen, the Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of BC. Gail, thanks for being back with us. Uh, Thanks for having us. Boy, this took a turn, didn't it? But it's a great turn because actually
6: means that we've been able to find them. Um, and it's been a collaboration between the public and governments in being able to find and detect them. So that in some ways, that's a good thing.
0: Okay, how did we find them?
6: So, uh, again, when it, when it comes to invasive species, often there's only a few of them around. So you need to have eyes every place. In this case, some really... Uh, focused and uh, uh, observant beekeepers noticed it, uh, but then they were able to track the source of where the hornets were coming from and were able to under- find the underground nest. And these hornets only nest underground, so they can make it difficult to find because you're not used to seeing them down there.
0: Okay, so how many are we talking about? Like when we say a nest, how big was it? How many might have been attached to it?
6: Uh, there's, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but there have been a couple hundred for sure attached to it. Um, but it's underground. They were able to treat it to, uh, with a CO2, and so they've been able to eradicate it. And uh, now they're just looking to confirm that there isn't any other nests that were in the area.
0: That's what I was wondering about. So does that does it usually mean there's more? Like, was this nest of a size where we think, okay, this can't be the only one?
6: Uh, we don't know that. The nest that, that they did discover wasn't dealing with... Um, reproducing hornets, so it was basically just a working nest. I'll use that layman's terms. Um, so that's, that, again, is the good news because the way the hornets evolve, they will go through different phases to where they actually will be breeding uh, other uh, for f- future populations, and that's not where this was. Because the Asian hornet isn't common to Canada, and it's just been found here once you find something, the next question is did you is there just one or is there more than right. one So people in Nanaimo and governments are looking to try to confirm are there other finds there and certainly encouraging the public if they see something and people are definitely phoning our numbers and sending us emails these days uh, if you find something, take a picture, grab a specimen, put it in a jar or whatever, grab it so it can be identified as to whether it is actually the asian giant hornet
0: that's that 's good though right that Gail that people are phoning you right away with this. That is awesome, and the more people that can watch out for something that looks out of
6: place, a brand-new plant, a brand-new insect, a um, a rabbit that doesn't belong out there, if people can keep their eyes open and report it, it's the first step to be able to try to make sure that they don't become established. And in things like this, which are from offshore... We, we don't want them established. I mean, they're dealing with Japanese beetle in Vancouver, and there's a bunch of different groups working together to make sure it doesn't get established, and the same approach of we don't want the Asian giant hornet established in Nanaimo or in British Columbia.
0: All right, so then what happens now, Gail? What do people need to know? People need to know, look, at, look on our
6: website, bcinvasives.ca, see what it looks like, see the one, other ones that are similar to it in looks, but you'll find that there's some very distinct features for this. Uh, when you see something, figure out a way to take a picture or, or trap one, and then let us know, because that's what we need to be able to have to provide to government so they can identify whether it's being found in any other area. So that's the most important thing that people can do.
0: Okay. Now, you know, people clearly have a fear of this thing. Like, those pictures were kind of freaky. Well, they are big. So they,
6: and as soon as you get a big wasp or bee or anything, Ooh. people get concerned. So this is, this is a large hornet. It is distinct. But... Um, And people might be scared by it, but it's actually not one that's very uh, aggressive to people. If you leave it alone, like many insects, it won't bother you. But yes, it does have a risk to us because of its its ability to have a reaction. So again, if you're scared of them, stay away, stay calm, um, take a picture, send it to us.
0: All right. So Gail, though, I have to ask you, like, what are you more scared of, an Asian giant hornet or say a tarantula? Which one of those crawling up your leg would you be more afraid of?
6: Well, that's interesting. I've never had the experience with either one, but I think with both of them, I'd stay calm and just try to end up. I've been in Australia with really big uh, spiders and insects, and you realize that what we
0: have here are quite small. See, that's the thing. It's perspective, right? Exactly. (laughs) Gail, thank you so much. And by the way, what's the website one more time? bcinvasive.ca, and you
6: go there and you can report either online or give us a phone call, but keep your eyes open. Uh, Let's hope there's no more Asian giant hornets found, but if you can find one and send it in to us, that will help us uh, respond to it.
0: All right, we'll do our best. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Gail Wall, the Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of BC. Yes, there is such a thing. The war on drugs. Well, that has been the theme of how the United States deals with drugs for the last, what, 40 years or so? But the opioid overdose crisis that has impacted us here is also having a dramatic impact in that country. So much so that some jurisdictions are kind of grappling with the idea of actually changing the entire approach to drugs. I mean, drug overdoses killed almost 70,000 people last year in the United States. That is a huge number just south of us in Seattle, they're trying a different approach. And it's a lot of it has to do with our next guest. His name is Dan Satterberg. He is a prosecutor in King County, and he has essentially changed how his entire office deals with people who have drug addiction and have, you know, who are busted, essentially, with drugs. And there's a lot of history associated with this as well. So we recently had a chance to talk to Dan about how this all got started and where his inspiration and thinking came from. Well, Dan, thank you for joining us today to talk about this. When did your attention first get drawn to this particular issue of opioid overdoses?
1: Well, first, I need to tell you, I've been in the prosecutor's office here in Seattle for 35 years. And so as a young attorney, I was part of the first war on drugs, if you will, when crack cocaine came to town in the late 1980s. So I've been following uh, the intersection of the criminal legal system and and substance abuse for many decades. Uh, And, you know, we've been hit hard here, but the truth is that I think Vancouver uh, is the epicenter of yeah. the opioid epidemic, of the fentanyl outbreak, and uh, and so a year ago, I, I had the chance to tour. The downtown east side of of Vancouver with uh, some people who really had um, built up some support systems for the people who were most affected with Liz Evans, who started the Portland Hotel Society and went to the the, uh, drug users union, the Vandu and went to the crosstown clinic where uh, prescription uh, or pharmaceutical opioids are given out went to the insight uh, mm-hmm. program and uh, overdose prevention society so that really opened my eyes to what uh what could the, the worst that could happen because i have to say i was pretty shocked by what i saw there but also the humanitarian response that was possible
0: right and so when you saw that kind of aspect of this that humanitarian response was that something that you wanted to take with you back to seattle
1: for sure and and i'm also I'm finally i think after 30 years of having drug policy set by politics and ideology and fear that uh, we wanted to see what does the science say about what the best way is to deal with people who are, are affected by this and what we know as addiction is defined is it's a medical problem it's and it's a real thing and and it's being studied and it, it The definition of addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences, and the prosecution of people is a negative consequence, and we realize now that we can't punish people out of this disease that's defined by resistance to punishment.
0: Right. You've been a a part of the prosecution service for a long time, as you mentioned there. How have you seen things change during that time? You talked about the politicization of the approach. That was, I guess, what we know, what we call the war on drugs. Uh, What have you seen as a result of the war on drugs during your time there?
1: Well, for sure, in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, even in the aughts, uh, we were punishing people with a very strict uh, sentencing guideline. So if you sold $5 worth of cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine, you'd do a two-year sentence. And then if you did it again, you'd do four years and six years. And so we were putting a lot of people uh, in prison for a long time for really subsistence level dealing. Everybody who uses drugs deals at some point or another to make... Their, their daily dose cheaper uh, and what it did it had devastating impacts on the communities of color that were most impacted it was a grossly disproportionate crime and across America 60% of people prosecuted for drug crimes were people of color uh, And so it, it, I mean, it really drove a wedge between law enforcement and and those communities that they were trying to help so I, I think what I'm trying to do and it's a slow process to, to steer the ship is to steer it toward a, a scientific and medical uh, uh, answer instead of just a a judicial system answer and we know that that what happens what works for people who are in the grips of addiction is to make a connection with somebody who is there to help them and it's a long hard road and you need to have social workers and case managers there but that's much more effective in my view than having police officers in jail cells
0: right and you've got a personal connection here as well because your sister struggled with addiction didn't she
1: yeah, and I've, I've told the story not because my family is different, but because my family is very typical. I mean, last year in America, 72,000 people died of drug overdoses, and you imagine the, the ripple of grief throughout families and friends and circles of people. It's a huge deal, and, and my own uh, younger sister had a about a 20-year battle with heroin, and I, you know, for a while, because I knew what she was doing, and she was hanging out with drug users and drug dealers, and I was the prosecutor, and so we kind of were estranged, but One day I did take her into a a clinic in in town and they were able to get her uh, into buprenorphine. Uh, which is the medication-assisted treatment that takes away that daily craving. Mm-hmm. And when she got on buprenorphine, my little sister Shelly, all of a sudden she was a different person. She didn't have to spend all day figuring out how to get heroin so she wouldn't get sick. Uh, she could start to work on other aspects of her life. And so she did end up uh, dying uh, about a year and a half ago, and it wasn't from an overdose, so she won't show up on one of those statistics but her health was ravaged from decades of, of abuse and she, her body couldn't fight off a simple infection. But having seen what millions of, of families see up close in mean, a front row seat to addiction, you know, it did change my view in the sense that, you know, what, what my little sister needed wasn't a jail cell, wasn't a set of handcuffs. It was somebody to help her and to come alongside. And, and for opioids, particularly, we do have some promising medication assisted treatment. And when you're on that, it reduces your chance of mortality by half. And so why not? Why not make it easy for people to get buprenorphine and methadone? And so that's been the strategy in Seattle now for the last couple of years is to have really a a no barrier thing. If you if you show up and say, I'm interested in methadone or buprenorphine, we can get you that the same day that you ask for it. And that's the strategy that we're going uh, full tilt on.
0: But in your role as a prosecutor, you also announced—what was that about a year ago—that you said you will no longer prosecute cases involving less than one gram of drugs, and that even includes like cocaine and heroin.
1: Yes, as cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine are the big ones. And and here, here's what really happens when when you prosecute people for possession of tiny amounts of drugs. And really, it's their daily dose, right? They got caught before they could use it that day. Uh, it it took us close to a year to resolve those cases. They were filed months after the arrest. The police, it wasn't a priority for the police. They'd send it to us when they got around to it. We'd prosecute it when we got around to it. And so people didn't show up for court because they never heard about the court date. And then they'd get arrested on a warrant. And then they'd get held in jail for a couple of weeks. And they'd come down and plead guilty to a gross misdemeanor, but with no offer of help along the way because our court system at that level wasn't built to offer help. So I, I thought, well, let's at least stop doing the harm that we know we're doing to people who have a medical disease and let's maybe that puts some pressure on the rest of the community to get ready to build up a a response an apparatus of help that can uh, help people do less harm to themselves and, and thus less harm to the community so you know it, 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 we've been able to expand a program that we've had here now for nine years called the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program or LEAD, L-E-A-D. and what that does is just gives the police officer a tool when they ar- find somebody who's got a small amount of drugs, rather than take him to jail and start this very long and expensive due process trail, they can call for a case manager who within an hour will show up at the police station, take over with this person, and begin to work with him in a harm reduction format, meaning meeting them where they are in their addiction, mm-hmm. helping them with what they need today to get better. I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis. And what I saw in Vancouver was was really remarkable to me. I, I was not prepared for what I saw. Um, and, and the people up there are doing tremendous work, uh, just trying to keep people alive every day. And, and I think at some point, the, the work on the streets has to be focused on keeping people alive, as opposed to punishing people. Because punishing people really it has no scientific basis uh, as a way to help people. Out of addiction.
0: Dan, how is this going over though uh, among the public there? And say, well, this is a very dramatic change, right, in the approach to drugs and all of those issues of the last 30, 40 years. How is this going over with people?
1: Well, you know, not everyone likes change. Um, People are, they say that the two things people don't like are change and the way things are. And so (laughs) I think that's true for drug policy too. It just, if people are afraid of drugs, they're fearful, it's scary. Uh, And so we're comfortable with the notion that we could just somehow if we just put people in in front of a judge that that would solve their drug problem. Uh, But I think people are waking up to it because of the the multiple millions of families that have had this personal experience like I had. Watching a loved one struggle, we know what it takes. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's, it's social science, so it's much harder than rocket science. But it just takes a, a, an army of social workers with resources and case managers and an understanding that we can help people get better. We can help people do less harm to themselves. Uh, and the first thing we need to do is stop doing harm to them through the, the criminal legal system.
0: Interesting. Dan, thank you so much for your time on this today. My pleasure. Stan Satterberg, he's a prosecutor in King County in Seattle. Well, one of the topics that we're discussing today as part of the federal election campaign has to do with immigration. There are a lot of misconceptions out there, uh, and even more so now that it has become such a hot topic in the campaign. So what is the reality? I mean, are we letting in everybody? Is the system in chaos? Well, to talk about that, we thought we would ask someone whose job is working within our immigration system. His name is Will Tao. He is an immigration and refugee lawyer, and he joined us earlier to answer some of those misconceptions and set us straight. Will, thank you for joining us to talk about this very hot topic during the election today. We're talking immigration. You wanted to emphasize some of the misconceptions, for instance. Let's start with immigration levels. Why do you think there is a misconception about that? What's actually going on?
5: Mm-hmm. I think the big misconception is that we're dealing with an, a number of millions, for example, in, in permanent residents, which we're not. Um, for the levels plan, for example, we saw in 2018, it was at 310,000. And in to- 2020, it's 340,000. And this actually hasn't been too much higher than it was back in 2006. and 2010, these levels actually have remained quite similar. So back then, let's say in 2010, it was between 240,000 to 265,000. So we're really just talking about about 50,000 uh, shift in the last little bit. Right. So that's not huge. So it's the same kind of 1% of the population we're talking about here. Correct. And they actually aimed for that at, in 2021. So we're not even there yet. And that's what the Conference Board of Canada, I think, really wants to see moving forward. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the big misconceptions is that, there are, that everyone um, is getting permanent residence right now. And it's very easy. And, in fact, it's not the case. Is it not very easy? What is it? There are a lot of barriers. I mean, if you talk about the economic barriers now, language is a huge one. So for individuals who don't score very high on language tests and don't come in with a level of English, it becomes very hard. For individuals who are older, it becomes very hard as well to immigrate through economic streams. So in in terms of other streams, in terms of family, class, and those other um, humanitarian compassionate grounds, those levels have always remained the same. So it's really just a focus on the economic stream that's... Driven right. sort of more numbers recently, and that's a point system we have, is that right? Correct. It's an express entry point system, and that system again is just it's it's very difficult to navigate unless you have Canadian work experience, unless your English skills are strong, unless you have, you're you're, you're not too old. If after forty five, for example, you get no points, and it's very difficult to immigrate.
0: So we're from the way you're describing it, is that we are quite selective about who we allow to come to this country, which really is a misconception versus what some people think.
5: Absolutely. And I think one of the concerns that people might get mixed up here is because that th- there there are an increase in numbers of temporary residents right now. So we're seeing those numbers go up quite a bit. So those are your students, your visitors, and your temporary workers. Mm-hmm. So maybe just viscerally, individuals... And I mean, this actually even can happen with Canadians and permanent residents. You're you're on a bus, you're on a sky train, and you're wondering, oh, who's you know, how long did you come here? Why are you speaking your own language? I think it's those visceral things that have caused people. What's to visible, form. yeah? And and that's maybe why the you know, in terms of that poll, I think was it um, Echoes did a poll that 42% of Canadians believe the country is accepting too many non-white newcomers, and I think that that might be a visceral thing where it's like. Because why not white? Because we're seeing increasing numbers from Australia, United States, yeah. Europe as well. Um, you know, there's great programs for Irish and, uh, youth to work Is in it Canada. Is just that
0: classic same old issue of they are visible, therefore they get selected for, you know, stereotyping. That,
5: that is stereotyping. M- my belief. And I think when you're talking about these polls and you're calling people and then and, and they're in their homes answering their phone, their warm homes, thinking about what's wrong or what they're concerned about, maybe these type yeah. of things come. And that's where it ties into racism and those issues.
0: Another big misconception, I think, with immigration is certainly one that we've heard a lot about. Maybe you can set us straight. has to do with asylum seekers
5: being viewed as Q jumpers. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's been Andrew Shear's sort of angle, and we've seen that come from, I think, Maxine Bernie and a bit of the right wing. Um, I don't think that that's the case. Um, First of all, they go through separate processing, uh, which is very, very important. And I know there's a concern about Roxanne Road and and a lot of individuals who have. cross over the border to try and avoid the safe third country agreement. Mm -hmm. But I think that a lot of people miss the stories behind why that happens. And it it is a global trend. There's a lot of issues going on in the United States as well documented. But when you have these individuals coming from, for example, South America, Central America coming up uh, through through those borders in order to come to Canada, or you have individuals who are, are in situations of risk, but can't access those services to try and seek overseas refugee protection, and they need to come to immediately, and they come to the U.S. because U.S. offers visas sort of easier than Canada does. It, it, once you hear the stories of these women who are facing domestic abuse, you f- families facing government persecution, you start seeing that, you know, a lot of this is rhetoric. And I think it is individuals who are just concerned uh, of people, the regular part of it, yeah. right? where it's a, it's a different process than putting an application forward.
0: But there's also an assumption, I think, that if people cross like that, they just get allowed to stay. And that's not true, And is that's it? not
5: true. And I think almost 40% of them get refused eventually for their refugee status. And, you know, some of them will be able to perhaps stay on humanitarian compassionate grounds, but it's not easy. And there's no way to go from, not a very good way to go from a refugee to an economic immigrant. And many times if they do have to return, their chance of ever coming back to Canada are very, very low. So... Um, you know, I I, I think that the, a lot of this is just a concern over the the people and the countries that are coming from and the and the way that they're coming right. in, but it's been created by a global trend, in my opinion.
0: Uh, let's talk about um, the other one of the other. Th- thoughts that get thrown out there all the time is that uh, immigration, people coming here are replacing Canadian employees, people who are already here, taking our jobs.
5: Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things we have to recognize is we have a very low uh, unemployment rate right now, which is, I think, a credit to the way that uh, things are at this stage. But then the jobs that need filling in the food industry, in the farms, are being filled by newcomers and migrants, uh, and and, and those ones are temporary foreign workers. One of the things with those workers, too, is they don't have, you know, they're getting paid many times wages that Canadians would never accept. And they don't, many of them don't have pathways to permanent residence at all. Uh, Until recently, many of them were bound by one employer. Uh, I know the government's taken steps to try and unbind unbind those, so it's sectoral specific, but it's a very tough occupation being a low-skilled worker in Canada, a temporary foreign worker who supports a family back home. Many of them want to go back home. They just need that money to support their families back home.
0: So they come here, in in some cases, do you think, to just work for a season or two seasons and then go back home?
5: Absolutely. So some of them have to come back every year because of how that you know there is a big reliance on the Canadian employment to support the family back home. And that's why I think one thing we should think about, and and I agree with the Greens on this, is climate refugees and situations where we can actually do more abroad to try and fix things it is very important because if we create situations of instability abroad, individuals will come to Canada in frequent numbers, and then we'll have this issue that I think a lot of people are concerned about. If we make things better for them in their countries of origin, hopefully we start assess, er, addressing these refugee issues and these concerns of uh, hardships and things that 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 create refugees right. and create immigrants.
0: I mean, immigration certainly has been a hot topic in this particular election campaign. Mm. Uh, one of the other things we always hear about is birth tourism. Yes. And there was even recently this week an article about mm. how the numbers had gone way up.
5: Yeah. I, I read that article, and I, and I know uh, the researcher who did that, and uh, I respect his work a lot. Um, I still think it is a little premature for us to first see this as, a, as something that requires total system-wide change. We've had... Uh, Birth, citizenship by birth since 1947. It's it's a long-standing principle of, of Canada. Um, it's created a lot of great families. It's, it's it's encouraged a lot of immigration. Are there people who are taking advantage of the system? Absolutely. And are there systems uh, globally that need fixing where we need to go probably to these countries and influence? Uh, you know businesses and practitioners and governments to not allow these practices to to be encouraged? Absolutely. Um, but right now, I think one of the things that gets lost in this conversation, too, is we have a lot of international students, a lot of people who can't stay in Canada because they're on humanitarian, compassionate grounds, uh, applications, uh, they don't have legal status per se, uh, but they want to have families here, too. And, it, and and from my opinion, as long as it's not becoming an abusive system-wide process and it's not coming at the cost of taxpayer money, uh, then we, we can promote individuals coming here to establish roots and, and, and become Canadian and, and build it through having children here and having families here.
0: Right. But where, where is that line? You said as long as it's yeah. not being abusive, right? And, where and is I, that line?
5: I think that's where we continue to study. And that's maybe where we start thinking about ways. And I think some governments are doing that where they I, I can't remember what province is doing that just now. But they're charging a fee, for example, for four nationals if they want to have children here in advance just to make sure that they have the funds to cover that taxpayer money. Um, so stuff like that too, but again, you know, uh, one of the things is that this often gets drawn out in the media as, as a as a Chinese problem or as one f- affecting a certain particular. I- I- Group. Um, if you talk to individuals, there's individuals from Europe, Middle East, all over the world who come here and say, listen, we want to come here as visitors. We have enough funds to support ourselves. Uh, we want to stay here for a bit, and we haven't had have a child. And, and years later, they come back and immigrate as a family. Is that a problem? I, I'm not too sure. And I, I guess
0: the other thing about that is if they do have a baby here, well, they mm. can't just automatically move here. Don't they have to wait until the baby is like 18
5: years old? Uh, the baby themselves can stay here and stay with family, and, and eventually, perhaps, when when they're over 18 sponsor. But I think the big issue uh, with that is it's the baby itself. Many times the family plans actually to return back to their own country. I think one of the things, another misconception in Canada that we have is that all immigrants want to come here and just stay here. The the reality of this global business and the reality of family ties is individuals go back and forth all over the place. And that's why actually we have a very generous two year out of five year permanent residence rule. In 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 the understanding that not everybody wants to become a citizen, although eighty six percent do, but people do travel back and forth. And and you know what? If they're coming back twenty years later because they had a child who's in Canada and they aren't doing this as part of some organized scheme, I think it's great that they're coming back and because their baby is here and that they want to start a family here. Uh, it's again when you know certain social services are abused or certain you know taxpayers are having to cover funds. Right. That's where I think people have concerns. Well, Will, thank you very much for joining us on this today. Absolutely, thank you. It's
0: Will Tao, an immigration and refugee lawyer, kind of working through some of the misconceptions that are out there on the issue of immigration. Well, as part of our Where We Live series, we're showing you little parts here and there in Metro Vancouver, little parts of the neighbourhood that maybe you didn't know were out there, interesting things about them. And we'll have more on that coming up a little bit later in the show. But maybe you're looking for something to do. Well, there's a couple of very big days going on at the city of New Westminster. They've got Riverfest going in its 17th year... That is where we sent our show contributor,
7: Claire Allen. She's there right now. Hi, Claire. Hey, Simi. Yes, I am down here at Riverfest, which is at the Fraser River Discovery Center in New Westminster. And it's pretty cool down here. You know, I've learned a lot about the Fraser River being down here. It's very interesting.
0: Well, it's very important to New Westminster. I would imagine what kind of stuff do they have going on down there?
7: Well, they have a lot of really cool things going on this weekend, which actually um, the Stephen Berniel, who works here at the Fraser River Discovery Centre, is going to tell you about in a minute. But first, Simi, I need to tell you about what I learned. Because, oh, okay. You know, yeah. I find this- <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I learned is about how integral the Fraser River is, not only to our local economy, but to uh, Canada's overall economy, because the Fraser River is actually the largest, it connects to Canada's largest and busiest port, which trades over $200 billion in goods every year. So I thought that was really cool to learn about. And then I also learned about tugboats, which actually play a huge part in Riverfest. They do um, a sort of like a tugboat parade in part of Riverfest, which is really cool for families to check out. But did you know, Simi, that the tugboats have this thing called the Dyneema Route, which is a really thin, light rope, which is actually made of the strongest synthetic fiber on Earth. And it's made so that if it breaks, it doesn't snap back and hurt anybody. But because it's used so much, this rope has to be replaced every four to five years, and it costs a whopping 40 grand to replace.
0: Okay, that is extraordinary. I did not know that. So every tugboat has to do that?
7: Yeah, I assume because there's so much wear and tear. I mean, they're pulling these enormous vessels or or uh, barges through the river. And uh, I just thought that was really cool that it was actually made of the strongest synthetic fiber on earth. And of course, for safety measures, that if it breaks, it doesn't snap back, which we, you know, we hear a lot of accidents where cords snap and end up hurting people. So I thought that was really neat. But um, to learn more about what goes on at Riverfest, uh, because there's lots of really cool things happening here and tomorrow's a really big day, um, I had the chance to speak with Stephen Bruniel, who is, he's with the Fraser River Discovery Centre, as I said, and he filled me in on what's happening this weekend and why you should come down.
3: Riverfest is the celebration of BC and World Rivers Day. So it happens on the uh, the, the third weekend of September every year. And uh, it's a celebration of all different aspects, in this case, of the Fraser River.
7: Awesome. And so I saw before we started the interview some of the photos that are on display today. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the pictures that are on display and how they play into Riverfest?
3: Sure. One of the things we do every year is something called Click Photos of the Fraser. It's an amateur photo contest. We pick a theme and then amateur photographers submit their, uh, their photos and then we, uh, we judge them and we, uh, we display the winners on year, all year. And the reason it's important is that we look at everything from a, a social, environmental and an, uh, an economic point of view with respect to the Fraser River. And so the theme of the photos falls into uh, to one of those categories each year.
7: Well the pictures are beautiful. I really enjoyed looking at them and it's so cool to know that people in the community took these pictures and they'll be on display for people to check out this weekend and through the rest of the year. Speaking of this weekend, um, if you want to come down with your family, what what can they expect?
3: There's lots going on uh, on Saturday. It's uh, it's our biggest day. We have between five and ten thousand people come down to the quay to see us, and it's for all ages. For uh, for young families, we have Juno nominated Bob's and Lolo be performing twice on the Saturday. Uh, we have artisans who will be uh, showing their wares and selling uh, selling their products. We have exhibitors, a lot of nonprofits who come and uh, talk about what they're doing for the river and for the environment, and we have the uh, Lucille Johnstone Workboat Parade. We get a number of tugboats that uh, fly around the river and. Uh, we talk a bit about what they do for the river. So a whole bunch of things for uh, everybody in the family. Inside the centre, there will be a lot of things for uh, for kids, educational things, uh, discovery boxes, games, uh, uh, all about learning about the Fraser River.
7: Wow, this is so cool. What an amazing event to learn about the Fraser River. I mean, I'm looking forward to learning a lot more, but thank you so much, Stephen. Really appreciate it.
3: You're welcome, and thank you for coming out.
7: All right, so Claire, it sounds like it's a big day. So what time is
0: this happening tomorrow in New West?
7: Um, so uh, everything kicks off um, early in the morning. So it's about ten a.m. till four p.m. I guess not that early, but you know, it's a great, a full day. <laughs> okay. A full day on the weekends. That's really depends me. on how old uh, your no, kids. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's a full day of activities, as you heard, and you've got some musical musical guests. And like he said, really cool activities for young kids to come down and learn about the Fraser River. Um, not only the economic side of the Fraser River, but also the environmental side of the Fraser River. And I must stress the pictures that the uh, amateur pho- uh, photographers have taken and entered are just they're really cool to see because it's about how. Animal, how we all interact with the Fraser River, right. especially if you live around here. And I was just, I thought it was a really cool way to get the community involved. And uh, like I said, mm. I really learned a lot. Okay,
0: I'd yeah. love to see those. Claire, thank you. Thank you, Simmy. That is our contributor, Claire Allen. She's down in New Westminster for Riverfest, back for its 17th year. Check it out; it's happening tomorrow as well, 10 to 4. Not that early. I know Claire thought that was that's not that early. I actually, head down there; lots of great events, very family friend friendly stuff. You know who's going to be very busy over the next couple of days? pollsters right across the country. They are furiously polling, trying to get a sense of whether or not what happened in the last, well, 36, 48 hours or so will have an impact on the election campaign and whether or not people are going to change how they vote or even decide how they vote as the basis of that. Now, as we've been hearing in the news, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is in Toronto today trying to do everything he can to try to take back control of their re-election campaign. He spent all day yesterday and even some more this morning apologizing for essentially the blackface brownface photos that have appeared in the last couple of days today he also said that he will speak personally with one of his opponents in this federal election that would be NDP leader Jagmeet Singh about those images and uh, Singh in response has said yeah he's absolutely willing to take that call it will be a private conversation he said Meanwhile, we know that Canada has become the much debated, discussed topic all over the world. Uh, All the late night talk shows in the United States were weighing in on this. The U.S. president weighed in on this today, saying he was very surprised to see the photos. So is any of this having an impact, though, on the election? Well, let's talk to Sean Simpson about that. He's the vice president of Ipsos Reid in Canada. Sean, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Have you already started kind of working this into your polling questions?
4: Well, we're back in field. You know, the the best way to go about uh, understanding the impact is to um, ask our, our standard tracking questions uh, again, and, and compare them to to before the incident. So uh, we're going back in field. You know, with vote and approval ratings, and uh, you know, after a couple of days in the field, we'll be able to uh, to see what the before and after impact is.
0: Yeah, how long does it generally take for an event like this one? or any kind of big event to kind of be seen in polling results?
4: Yeah, well, usually it takes, um, you know, m- maybe five days. And the reason is because you don't necessarily go in the field the day after. Because a lot of times, what you're getting is just knee jerk reaction from sort of partial information that, that you've uh, maybe been exposed to uh, very soon after the story breaks. So, uh, you know, you want it to play for a day or two in the news cycle and then go in and start to measure public opinion over the course of about three days. And then you get the, uh, the results after and, and, and can really start to understand what the impact is.
0: All right. So, where were we at even 24 hours ago or today with the election? Mm-hmm. Where, how, how would you describe? The, how people were feeling?
4: Yeah, well, we were we were at a dead heat. Uh, it was 35-35 in terms of popular vote between the liberals and the and the conservatives. Um, and uh, actually, the prime minister was in the driver's seat when it came to a lot of leadership attributes, like um, best prime minister. And um, I think his most significant advantage here is someone who will protect the interests of cultural, religious, and other minorities in Canada. Uh. You know, that may be a, a feeling or a sentiment that. Um, That that, that some people in certain parts of the country may be reassessing based on some of the things that we've learned over the last 48 hours.
0: Right. Okay. Because, yeah, and, and some of these choices, people were asked to even just pick who their choice was for prime minister. And up until now, he did well on that front, didn't he?
4: That's right. He had a seven-point lead uh, over uh, over Andrew Scheer, and that was actually a, a recent development. Uh, in August, Andrew Scheer led, but uh, uh, even despite the um, uh, the Ethics Commissioner report that that uh, suggested that you know the Trudeau government wasn't really um, open and forthcoming uh, in the investigation of the SNC Lavalin issue, his approval ratings, the best Prime Minister rating, all improved for the incumbent government, which was a bit of a surprise. This, you know, may be a game changer as well. But you know, a month ago, many of us thought that the Ethics Commissioner report was going to do the same thing.
0: Had, has anything fluctuated in the, you know, week to 10 days that the election campaign has officially been on?
4: And not, not that we've uh, not that we've measured. Um, aside from this most recent issue, not a, not a whole lot has happened. There's been a little bit of uh, uh, policy debate, um, but uh, really Canadians were were, were fairly uh, locked in uh, overall in terms of um, uh, voter support, and, and I think we're just waiting to learn a little bit more about uh, who maybe some of the alternatives are in terms of Andrew Scheer and then Jagmeet Singh, maybe some ideas that the Green Party have, and so we'll really be looking towards October seventh, which is the English English language debate to understand kind of how everything shakes out and, um, and, and and what might happen in the final days of the campaign.
0: Now, Sean, have you seen numbers like this before? Like, was it like this in the last election campaign? Or can you ever think of a time when it was like this?
4: No, you know, I was trying to think of a, of a, of a campaign that started so closely. Um, and I think that's what really makes it exciting, at least for pollsters and political pundits. You know, when, when you when you play a game with your family, you all start off in the same spot, at, at spot zero. Um, election campaigns usually have a leader uh, at the beginning. Uh, so, so the fact that it's so close right now, in particular in, in the key area of the 905, that greater Toronto area where there's a whole ton of ridings uh, up, up for grabs um that that makes it very exciting because at this stage in the game uh, i don't think anybody can predict uh, what's going to happen
0: right so you don't think that we'll see the impact of the last couple of days then for another 5 or 6 days
6: Well, I
4: think we'll start to see it um, in in this most recent poll, um, or sorry, the the poll that we're going into field with now. Um, But, uh, you know, whether or not it's a knee-jerk reaction that then in the following weeks um, essentially cancels itself out, or is just the start of a decline for the Liberals, I, I really can't predict that with any degree of certainty.
0: Oh boy, it makes your job so interesting, doesn't it? Oh,
4: and and it's uh, causing me to lose a lot of hair as well.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Sean, but I hope it works out well for you. I'm sure we'll be talking to you during the campaign. Thank you.
4: Oh, thank you so much.
0: That's Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Reid in Canada. I would imagine pollsters in general uh, are just furiously polling away as much as they possibly can, especially in light of the last, you know, 48 hours on the campaign trail. Here's the hard truth.
2: People are dying. Families are grieving. Communities are suffering. So we're going to do more and we're going to do better. Thoughts and prayers are just not going to cut it. It's
0: Liberal leader Justin Trudeau today on the campaign trail, obviously trying to change the channel from what's been talked about over the last 48 hours and talking about how the Liberals are promising to ban military-style assault rifles as part of a broader gun control plan. One of the other things they're talking about is taking some steps towards giving cities more powers to restrict and ban handguns. And remember, that's come up in recent years. Surrey has talked about this. Toronto has talked about this as well. So we wanted to talk more about this particular issue. Uh, The the Liberals, their backdrop for that announcement today was actually Toronto's Greektown neighborhood. That's where a gunman killed two people and wounded 13 others last year. So clearly it's going to resonate there. Does it resonate right across the country? To talk more about this, Daniel Fritter joins us now. Publisher of Calibre, it's Canada's firearms magazine. He's speaking to us from Kelowna. Daniel, thank you for joining us.
8: Thank you for having me.
0: Do we need a military-style assault rifle ban?
8: No, I don't think so. They're they're typically not used uh, in the commission of a crime, and I think it, it speaks a bit to it. It you know, Justin Trudeau announced this from uh, the Danforth, where. Uh, an individual used an illegally acquired prohibited firearm using a handgun uh, to use that as the backdrop for announcing a military-style assault weapon ban or whatever that is, um, is a little bit strange, but I think it speaks to the fact that they aren't really a problem.
0: Right. So then, but do we need them at all, then?
8: Um, I mean, obviously, the issue becomes, do you want to live in a country where you have to justify the things you possess? because um, if you have to make the well, do we do you need one argument, then it has to be extended out from that, obviously. And do you need to have wine? Do we need to have cars that are capable of one hundred and thirty kilometers an hour, that kind of thing?
0: Okay, so you feel it's unnecessary how uh, to buy one of them now in Canada. Talk to me about the process you have to go through for that.
8: So specifically for an AR fifteen, you have to take a two day two day mandatory safety course that culminates in both a practical and a written exam. You must pass both, obviously. Then you need to provide uh, a triplicate of character references, including your previous conjugal partners, if you have any. Um, you have to disclose your financial standing if you've declared bankruptcy, if you have any mental health attestations, the government needs to know. You submit all that to the government, and I think it's about 28 days later, there's a mandatory waiting period, a cooling-off period, as they refer to it. Uh, you get your license. From that point, you can then go to the store. You can ask to purchase an AR-15, which will cost you probably around $1,500, Uh The gun store won't actually give you the rifle. They'll instead call the government and say, can we transfer this rifle to that individual? And the government will say, yes, that person has a license, and they'll approve the transfer, and then the gun will be transferred over. Once you get it, you have to store it in a gun safe or in a locked container with a trigger lock on it as well, and you can only take it to a gun range.
0: How widely purchased are these things?
8: There's around just over, I believe, 50,000 AR-15s in Canada, legally owned.
0: Right, and so they're are, they're traceable. Then it sounds like from the description the what the system the, that you provided there that you talked about. If there's a problem, the government should be able to find out who had what gun.
8: Well, exactly. AR-15s are restricted firearms, just like handguns, so they are still registered. So the government knows exactly how many are out there and who has them. Um, and like I said, the other laws are that you can only take them to a gun range or a gun store. You can't take them anywhere else. You can't take them hunting. You can't take them in the woods. It's actually illegal for you to take too long of a detour on your way to the gun range. You can't, if I'm driving, for example, from Delta to Abbotsford to go shooting and I detour into Vancouver, that's illegal. You have to take an expeditious route to get there. So these guns are not even on the streets, And it's largely why you don't see them in the commission of a crime, because if you're a criminal, do you want a, hand, a, a kind of gun that's going to get you a lot of attention and a lot of headlines if you get caught with it? Or do you just want to have the, you know, illegally smuggled handgun that everyone else uses that, you know, the police are used to seeing and whatnot and dealing with?
0: So then do you think when you hear politicians talking like this, you think, well, this is just fish in a barrel. This is just like it's, it's an easy target.
8: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've the second the photos came out, everyone within the gun industry knew that there would be an announcement shortly. It follows Paul Martin's exact you will remember the gunbury uh, inquiry was released late in 2005 November by December Paul Martin was in Toronto announcing if the liberals were reelected a handgun ban so it's it's the exact same playbook that they're following here um, and i think it's it's an attempt to distract and it's frustrating
0: is there a better way than daniel that you can think of that would reassure people that you know some political party is doing something on the issue of gun concerns <laughs>
8: Um, I think the big thing with the gun concern, for example, is around just over 200 people that were murdered with handguns in 2013. That's the year that they're referencing, which was also uh, a a bad year for it. It's one of the worst years we've had on record. It's been down since then. Um, I think the big thing has to come down to analysis of funding. That's what I wish people would look at more than than the gun control regime. Because like I said right now, to get a gun in Canada, you need to have a license. That's... Mm -hmm. That process that I explained earlier is for any gun. It doesn't matter if it's a hunting gun or an AR-15. You have to go through the same process. So we're essentially controlling the population of people that can acquire guns quite well. Mm -hmm. Every day, everyone with a license goes through a criminal record check because if you're uh, investigated or arrested for a violent crime, you know, you get in a bar fight on a Wednesday night, Thursday morning, the RCMP are going to be knocking on your door to take those guns away because until you clear up that charge, you cannot legally possess those firearms. The Criminal Code of Canada says possession of a firearm in Canada is illegal unless you have a license and it's a five-year exemption. Right. And the license obviously has these conditions. So we're already controlling that very, very well. I wish that they would put more funding into the causes of the violence that we're seeing, which is primarily the drug trade. And I wish that we'd see more gang interdiction going after the money laundering and and the other avenues that organized crime are using guns to commit violence.
0: But what is enforcement like, Daniel? Like we have these rules. The rules, I think, when you listen, they're very comforting. You think, okay, we're on it. But what is enforcement like if somebody's guns get stolen, if another gun shows up in the commission of a crime, how good are we at saying that was your gun and you have to pay a price for that?
8: Um, if Obviously, if a gun is registered, like an AR-15 or a handgun, uh, they can. I would assume, they, unless the serial number is defaced by the, the criminals, who I, I don't know into the technical aspects of that sort of stuff where that goes. But if there's a serial number there, they should be able to find it. And, and I know that they have found, they've put a lot of effort into trying to find out where guns come from. Obviously, you do end up with some problems because of the poorest border. Unfortunately, we, you know, not unfortunately, rather, but we do live next to the most heavily armed country on the planet, mm-hmm. and we don't have a defended border. So... Ultimately, uh, if you talk to anyone in law enforcement that works with firearms, um, they'll just tell you that you have to kind of think of them like any other commodity, like cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines, you name it. They flow through borders from places where they're cheap to places where they're expensive. If they ban a bunch of guns in Canada, they'll just get them from the States is the cold hard reality of it. They're already smuggling drugs across that border, adding handguns to those shipments right. would not be that much of a a leap.
0: But then what about dealing with this handgun problem, right? We know that's come up time and time again. Police chiefs have talked about this as well. What do we do about that?
8: Increase funding at the grassroots level, like right at the. They need to be increasing funding for organized crime units in Surrey and Vancouver and Toronto. Kelowna here um they need to literally just put more officers into cruisers and on the street corners uh investigating these crimes because i mean the backlogs on caseloads are huge these days the Kelowna rcmp here in town are chronically underfunded and understaffed um we've seen time and time again in history the only way to really make a huge dent in crime rates is to increase the amount of people doing enforcement
0: right so you had heard that though from anybody Have you really heard that, though, from any political party talking about that Um, approach?
8: No. Interestingly, uh, sort of some of the only people that I've heard it from have been other people that have been kind of coming at the gun issue from, to be honest, kind of the opposite side, like uh, Communities for Zero Violence and whatnot, that are pointing out, you know, they're not funding uh, groups that, for example, keep youth from getting involved with gangs. Uh, They're not funding those sorts of things. They're not funding outreach. They're not funding at-risk youth programs. Um, because then I, I think this is a testament to it, because they want the votes. This is a you know a channel changing vote getting machine mm-hmm. for them more than a solution to a problem. So
0: All right. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for the analysis on this. Oh, thank you. That's Daniel Fritter, publisher of Calibre, it's Canada's firearms magazine. He's talking to us from Kelowna.